This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. You would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. John 10, and we will begin in verse 22 and read through the end of the chapter. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this evening, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive it. That we, your sheep, would hear the voice of the shepherd and believe it and heed it unto everlasting life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at Jesus' teaching that he is the good shepherd who leads his sheep and lays down his life for them. 
and also how he was the door of the sheepfold, the only way by which his people may go to find everlasting life. We have seen that Jesus continues to press a division between those who are his people, those who are his sheep, and those who are not. There are sheep, there are those who hear the voice of the shepherd, and they come and they follow Jesus, and they have life and hope and rest. But then there were others. There are thieves and robbers and wolves who live how they live and do what they do to try to steal the sheep away and to thwart Jesus' work and word. But God does not lose any of his people. Christ does not lose any of his sheep. And in Jesus' teaching that we look at here tonight, though it takes the form it often does of this disputation and opposition with those thieves and robbers and wolves, this teaching provides great words of comfort to those who are Christ's sheep. The rest of chapter 10, though situated a couple months after the previous passage, contains teaching in a very similar vein, in a similar place, to a similar group of people. And we will look at this teaching tonight in three points. First, we see obscurity in verses 22 through 30. Jesus will be accused of having not properly revealed who he is. But is that really so? And what does it mean? Then second, we will see, once again, opposition in verses 31 through 39. Another attempt will be made on Jesus' life by those who seek to silence him. And then third and finally, we see opportunity in verses 40 through 42 after this confrontation in Jerusalem. Where does Jesus go and what does he do next? So again, we have obscurity, opposition, and opportunity. First tonight, we will look at obscurity in verses 22 through 30. We see that some time elapses, passes from the previous passage. The last confrontation was still set at the Feast of Booths. That would have been held in the fall, usually around October. About two months pass, and we are now at the Feast of Dedication, which is in winter, particularly in December. Now, the inclusion of the Feast of Dedication in John's Gospel is a piece of fascinating information because the Feast of Dedication is not a feast that was prescribed in the Old Testament like the others. However, it is a feast you have probably heard of. It would probably be the most well-known Jewish feast in our day. We know it as Hanukkah. Hanukkah traces itself to the intertestamental period specifically the time of the Maccabean rebellions, where Judas Maccabeus in 165 BC cleansed and rededicated the temple after it had been defiled by Antiochus Epiphanes. So though this was not a biblical festival, it seems that Jesus still observes it. He comes to Jerusalem and he comes again to the temple. Now, we don't know what happened in the time between these two feasts. We don't know where Jesus went or what he was doing in those couple of months. But he does return to Jerusalem for the next feast and a discussion that seems to pick up right where the previous one left off. So again, Jesus comes to the temple. 
And just as before, he is met there by the Jews, by the scribes and the Pharisees, those who oppose him and who sought to kill him the last time that he was in town. And they don't even seem to want to have a discussion this time. They want to get right down to business. They ask him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, have you been here as we've been working through the Gospel of John? We have seen many, many, many ways where Jesus has in very clear terms, or at least clear to those who would believe and understand what he says, he has declared himself to be the Christ. So many times Jesus has asserted his divine origin and unity with the Father, his purposes and salvation, and that he is the one who the prophets foretold. And he has done many signs and wonders to validate these claims. But still these Jews do not believe. Now this all goes to show something else that we have repeatedly seen throughout the Gospel of John. No one can believe Jesus without faith, which is a gift from God worked by the Holy Spirit. Jesus has said and done all of these things. He's given them more than enough evidence, but still they doubt him. Now, it's not because what he has said and done is inadequate proof. Rather, the issue is that no proof in itself is adequate. As Jesus has said before, no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. All the revelation, all the miracles, all the teachings, all the good arguments can do nothing apart from the Holy Spirit working faith in the hearts of those who hear. It may, in fact, be asked if those who were present, those who confronted Jesus at the Feast of Dedication, really wanted him to reveal himself as the Christ because they are interested in finding out the answer to that question. Remember that Jesus has already plainly revealed himself as the Christ to some people, for instance, at the end of chapter 9, to the blind man. But he did it to this man alone after the Pharisees and others were out of the picture. Now, part of this that we see is Jesus continuing to exercise his will and when his time to suffer and die comes. If Jesus just comes out and says, yes, I'm the Christ to these Pharisees, it's probably not going to result in them saying, oh, okay, and believing and worshiping him. No, they're looking to kill him and they're looking for a reason to kill him. Particularly, it may seem that they're trying to entrap him on a charge of blasphemy. That is ultimately what they will get Jesus for. Once Jesus gives himself into their hands, he will, they will charge him with blasphemy and put him to death for that reason. They've already made up their minds. They are already certain beyond the shadow of a doubt, though they are wrong, that Jesus is a liar and a blasphemer. And so this request is probably just another attempt to catch him in it, to trap him so they can get rid of him. And really, this is the plight of all unbelief. Those who reject the word of Christ can and will come up with any and every reason they need to continue to persist in their unbelief. Jesus himself could appear right now 
In this world, he could feed 5,000 people today or heal a paralytic or a blind man or turn water to wine. And people would still find some reason to disbelieve because no one can believe without faith, which is a gift from God. Jesus does answer in verse 25. He says, I told you and you do not believe. Again, to those who would believe that Jesus is the Christ, they have all the testimony they'll ever need. And Jesus reminds them of some of that proof. The works that I do in my Father's name, he says, they bear witness of me. All these signs and wonders that Jesus did, all the things he has taught, his whole ministry to this point is living proof that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But that is not enough. Why? Well, he says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There you have it. Jesus' sheep, those whom the Father has chosen to give to him, those elected for eternal life and blessedness, they hear the voice of their shepherd, Jesus Christ. They hear his words. They recognize whose words they are, and they follow their shepherd where he leads. There's nothing new here. It's essentially what Jesus said last time in verses 11 through 18. But what is new this time comes in verse 28. And he says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. In other words, those who are the shepherd's sheep remain the shepherd's sheep. Jesus has taught about things up to this point that could be frightening to his sheep. He's taught about thieves and robbers and wolves, the full array of things that could attack and harm and kill sheep. We've seen lots of other texts in Scripture lately, for instance, in the mornings in Genesis that remind us of a lot of the dangers that God's children face in this world. We just saw this morning how we live in a world, we live in a culture not that different from Sodom. And we see many people we know, we see people we love caught up in the lies and deceptions of the spirit of this age. Now, this word here used for snatch, the Greek word, it's a word describing violence. It's a word describing struggle. Life in many ways is a struggle for God's people. There are enemies everywhere. There are attacks from all sides. Our hope and our confidence and our assurance can be wounded and shaken in various times in various ways. But those whom the Father has chosen for everlasting life, those who hear the voice of their shepherd, are certainly and definitely kept and preserved and given that eternal life. Now in this are words of rebuke to the non-sheep who would seek to harm the sheep and steal them away from their shepherd. But for the sheep, these are the sweetest words of comfort. Nothing can take you away. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. No one can kill or steal or destroy you ultimately. If you belong to Christ, if you are one of his sheep, you have nothing to fear. But it is not only the shepherd himself that signs and seals this promise. We also see in verse 29, Jesus says, My father 
who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The Son has come to do the will of the Father, and their will is unified, and their work is unified. God the Father, the God that these Pharisees claim to know and be the true servants of, but the God who cannot be known apart from Christ, because how many times do I say it? No Jesus, no God. No Jesus, no salvation. But that God, that Father, guarantees and seals and assures his people of their eternal life. And the Father and the Son do this work together because they are one and the same God in Trinitarian fellowship together with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this explicitly in verse 30. I and my Father are one. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the God who the Pharisees claim, but they reject and disobey and oppose him at every turn as they have turned into a law unto themselves. Lest there be any doubt of the many, many times that Jesus has claimed to be God, here he says it in the clearest and plainest of terms. And this does provoke an expected response. Once the obscurity is removed, we come to our second point, opposition, in verses 31 through 39. Immediately after Jesus says this, that he and the Father are one, the Jews once again take up stones to stone him. Again, perhaps this betrays that all of this was a trap. They wanted Jesus to say something like this, that they could categorize his blasphemy and proceed to kill him. Or maybe they were so genuinely enraged that it happened spontaneously. But however it went, their opposition and hatred to Jesus ran so deep that they wanted to kill him right then and there, even in public, even at the temple. They have no shame. They have no restraint in their hatred of Jesus. But Jesus seems relatively unbothered. Why would he be bothered? He knows his time has not yet come. He knows that he lays down his life and takes it up again under his own authority, which is the same divine authority of the Father. And so he responds, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? In a certain way, it almost seems like Jesus is taunting his opponents here. He is laying bare their hatred and hypocrisy. What has Jesus done? He's basically challenging them. Why are you stoning me? What are you stoning me for? Because what has Jesus done? He has done good works. He has healed the injured and the ill. He has provided food and drink. He has taught true and good things concerning the Father though many do not believe because it has not been granted to them to believe. Now, Jesus' crime against the scribes and the Pharisees is that he has come to upend their status quo, their rule, their power, their traditions, and their authority. But the authority that they pretend to have, Jesus has genuinely. Jesus is a threat to their ways. That is why they hate him. That is why they want him dead. 
Of course, no one would accept the legitimacy of such a proceeding if that was the basis for it, if it was just a jealous power play. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they had to dress it up in some legitimate-looking charge, which in this case, they're reaching for blasphemy. That is what they say in verse 33. They claim that Jesus has blasphemed because he, being a man, has made himself to be God. But Jesus responds to them with an argument from the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 82. Now, it is fascinating that he refers to this text from the Psalms as part of the law. Typically, when we think of the law, we think the Ten Commandments, or more broadly, the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch. But here we see the Psalms referred to as the law. Now, this is, for instance, important when we think of Jesus and how he refers to the law and the prophets and how he has come to fulfill them, how they speak concerning him. He is talking about all of the scripture, all of the Old Testament, and particularly in how it points to him and serves his purposes. Well, what is it that Jesus is arguing here from Psalm 82? Well, the part of Psalm 82 that he quotes is actually a rebuke. It is a taunt of, evil rulers who forsake justice in the discharge of their duties. Here is verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 82. It says, I said you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. So the ones who are called gods little g-gods in our English Bibles, they're actually being judged for false judgments. They are perishing, while God, the true God, inherits the nations. But the argument that Jesus is making is that despite this, uh, despite that this is in the context of judgment and a taunt, these men are called in the holy, inspired, inerrant word of God because Jesus reminds them in verse 35 that the scriptures cannot be broken. They are called gods. It is permissible in certain cases for men to be called gods, and this in itself is not blasphemous. This is essentially an argument from the lesser to the greater. If it is appropriate and even biblically inspired in certain cases for mere men to be called gods, as the psalmist did, and if the Pharisees never raised an objection to this before, how much more appropriate is it that the one who truly is the Son of God, who truly has been, as Jesus said in verse 36, sanctified and sent into the world by the Father, how much more appropriate is it that he is worthy of the titles he is using? He really is God. He is God the Son in human flesh. All he's doing is telling the truth. But the Pharisees hate him because their hearts and minds and eyes have not been opened to believe. They are not of his sheep. When they hear his voice, they don't hear their shepherd. They hear in their minds a liar and a fraud and a blasphemer. And Jesus adds a further defense. They will not believe his claims to divinity on their own. Okay, but what about the works he has done? If he is a liar and a fraud and a blasphemer, how do they account for the things that he has done? This is what he argues in verses 37 and 38. 
If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Now it would be one thing if a man showed up claiming to be God. That might, even under the right set of circumstances, turn into a legitimate blasphemy charge. But Jesus has said and done nothing that anyone could legitimately use to prove him false. All of his words have been backed up by works. He has done these great signs and wonders and miracles that only one who was from God could do. Could the Pharisees turn water into wine? Could the scribes feed 5,000? Could the priests heal the paralyzed and the blind? Of course not. Jesus does works that could only be done by someone who has the power of God. Now this shows us the true purpose of biblical miracles. Much is made in our day about works of healing and the like. There are some that build these ministries of being faith healers. We can come to these meetings and you can receive healing. But the purpose of the miracles is to validate the word of God. Now, this is not to say that God cannot and does not heal or that we shouldn't pray and ask for healing or things of the like. God can heal. He can do other works. He can provide for us. And we should ask him for these things. But these healing miracles are not an end in themselves. They serve to validate greater purposes. They serve to validate the word of God. They serve to point to the God who saves and his way of salvation, which is far more important and far more miraculous than any earthly sign or earthly miracle, or earthly healing or something of the like. Jesus does these miracles to prove that who he is is who he says he is. God in the flesh. God who has come, the Son of God and the Son of Man who will save his people from their sins. But the scribes and the Pharisees, as usual, will not accept Jesus' testimony. In verse 39, they once again seek to seize him, to arrest him, to take him in so they might put him to death. But as we have seen so often, Jesus once again eludes them. He escapes and he is gone. For he knows his time, and he and he alone has authority to lay his life down. Not only do Jesus' teaching and signs point to who he is, but even his ability to continually elude and escape the murderous mob that is after him shows his power and authority over all things. Jesus is even using his enemies and their evil plots to demonstrate his power and authority and his supremacy over all things. But what happens after Jesus once again eludes the Pharisees? Well, this brings us to our final point. After the obscurity and the opposition, we come to opportunity in verses 40 through 42. Here we see a transitional statement of place and time. Jesus leaves Jerusalem and goes back to the place beyond the Jordan where John the Baptist had first baptized and where Jesus and his disciples had spent some time back in the early chapters of John. Now, why does he go there? 
And what does this have to do with the other things that we have seen and heard in this passage? Well, Jesus is the good shepherd. And Jesus, in his sovereign knowledge and power, knows exactly who his sheep are. And he knows where they are. And he has come to make one sheepfold of his people, one from the two, Jews and Gentiles alike. And so part of his mission is he goes to where his sheep are to bring them in. So he goes where John the Baptist's disciples had been, and some were still there. John is not with them any longer, but the work of preparation that he had done comes to fruition. Jesus stays there, and many come to him who believe. They believe because of the testimony that John had given before, because John was a prophet from God. They know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who has come to take away their sins. And so as Jesus has increased and John decreased, they come to follow Jesus. It's a very different reception than the one in Jerusalem. It's not the reception of thieves and robbers and wolves being confronted in their sin and rebellion. It is the response of sheep hearing the voice of their shepherd. It's even pointed out here that John performed no sign. They believed Jesus just based on what John had said. But now Jesus does signs, and his signs are known. And to those who it has been given to believe in Christ, they receive and believe the signs as true confirmation of Jesus' word. The sheep hear the voice of their shepherd. If you are one of Christ's sheep, and you hear the shepherd's voice and believe and receive it, it is from this that you know that you have eternal life, that no one can snatch you out of Christ's hand because Christ and the Father are one and have all power to guard and protect and preserve you. But perhaps you're here tonight and you don't receive and believe this word. Well, friend, Jesus Christ is the only good shepherd. All the other voices you hear that try to push and pull you away from belief in Christ's word, they are wolves, they are thieves, they are robbers. They seek your end, they seek your death. Just like these Pharisees in Jerusalem sought Jesus' death. See Christ as he has been put before you in his word. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and takes it up again, conquering sin and death forever. Because there is no other way to salvation. No other way of life. Do not be, as the scribes and the Pharisees, deceived and obstinate and rebellious and looking just to keep the status quo, to persist in sin and opposition. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and know and follow your shepherd where he leads. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glorious truth in it, that your son Jesus Christ is our shepherd that he guards us, keeps us, and preserves us together with you, and that no one can snatch us out of your hand. 
I pray that all your sheep who are here gathered tonight would be comforted by this truth and know with confidence that uh, our lives and our hope are secure with you. If there are any here tonight who do not believe, I pray that by your spirit you would open their hearts and the sheep would hear the voice of their shepherd even for the first time and know and follow him. And I pray that we would all be salt and light to this lost and dying world that needs to hear this gospel, for there is salvation in no one else. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.